Haggai chapter 1, starting in, in that last verse, verse 15. Haggai chapter 1, starting in, at the end of verse 15. If you don't have your Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one near you. Uh, you're free to open that up. And, and the page number is actually in your bulletin. So you can, you can cheat and turn to it quickly. If you don't know where Haggai is, it's okay to look in the index in the front and, and find it. And if anybody says anything to you, you tell me because they shouldn't do that, all right? So Haggai chapter 1 starting in the, at the end of verse 15. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. So as soon as you find Haggai 1.15, go ahead and bow your heads. Um, but, but if you need to keep looking, keep looking. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. I thank you for the good news of Jesus uh, that sets captives free from their sin and shame and, and your deserved wrath. And God, I, I thank you that... The work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection is, is enough to give us hope. It, it is enough to give us a, a reason to get out of bed each morning. And Father, it is, it is enough to drive us um, to, to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to tell the story to those that need to hear it. Father, I pray that as, as we study your word and as we, as we enter into uh, the last chapter of Haggai, that you would... would Reveal your power, reveal your glory, and, and give our tongues a taste of the new Jerusalem. Help us to see that everything that ever has happened, is happening, or will happen is, is preparing our hearts for eternity with you. Father, help us to rest in this truth and rejoice in it and look forward to the day that Jesus returns. Father, speak for your servants are listening. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So one of my favorite places in all the world um, is a place in my home state called Seneca Rocks. And I used to think that um, Seneca Rocks was near the top of the world. Um, the Seneca Rocks, is, it's nestled in this... I wouldn't even call it a valley. Um, it's, it's a very, very small area amongst these mountains in West Virginia. And, and I grew up going to Seneca Rocks probably, well, at least every year at Thanksgiving because we would be up in that area, uh, but sometimes two or three times a year uh, to hike and to explore the river and, and just to, to enjoy God's creation. Um, and I still sometimes get the sense that it's, it's near the, the top of the world. But as you... New Mexicans know um, there's nothing in or there's nothing east of the Mississippi that comes close to the mountains we have here, right? In fact, Seneca Rocks is near uh, the highest point in West Virginia, which is called Spruce Knob, and the highest point in West Virginia, the mountain state, right, um, is only 863 feet higher than the Hatch Valley. Um, so the mountain state is not very mountainous, right? Um, you have, we, or I guess I should say we, I've been here long enough, right? We have peaks here in New Mexico uh, that, that West Virginia cannot come close to. Um, but, but part of, I think part of the, part of the lore and part of the reason that my heart goes to that is because I experienced these places as a little kid. And, and our imaginations, as we look to our history, uh, tend to make things bigger than they actually are. And so 
what God is, is helping the return to exiles to see in, in Haggai uh, chapter 2 is that what he has done is not as great as what he will do. And so as, as we're plodding through the first part of chapter 2 this morning, we need to come to this understanding that God has a glorious future for his people. And we need to open our eyes to see his work. God has a glorious future for his people, and we need to open our eyes to see his work. And so we're going to jump into the last half of, of chapter 1, verse 15. Remember, we talked last week about how uh, we believe that, that the Bible is um, the inspired word of God and that the words are from him through human authors, but that the chapters and the verses were added at a later time and sometimes they don't get it quite right. And so we're going to start with the end of, of verse 15 in chapter 1 because that flows better with the rest of Haggai. And so we're told this, in the second year of Darius the king, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. So this is almost a month later from what we saw last week, which was a response to a sermon that happened almost a complete month before. And, and we saw the people of God respond to, to God's um, discipline on their life by saying they were going to stop worrying about personal matters and they were going to take care of the temple of God and, and take care of the place where he meets with his people. And so we're told that, that this sermon that Haggai is about to deliver comes in the seventh month. Friends, the seventh month was a busy month for Jewish people. On the first day of the seventh month, they had the Feast of the Trumpets, which was a, um, a celebratory reminder to worship God. And so for a day, on the first day of the seventh month, they would, they would consecrate themselves, they would have a religious service, and they would blow these trumpets in worship of the Lord. And then on the 10th day of the month, they would again consecrate themselves and have a religious service because the 10th day of the seventh month was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is when the two goats were brought in to represent the sin of Israel. Prayers were placed on both goats, taking the sins of the people and putting them on them. And then one of the goats was led out into the desert, away to represent God taking away the sins of the people. And the other goat was sacrificed, reminding them that sin is paid for by blood, that, that our disobedience before God is a, a cosmic law-breaking. And so later, on the 15th through the 22nd days of the month, you had the Feast of Booths, which I have to be honest, when I was a kid, I thought it was the coolest festival in the Old Testament. I kind of, I used to wish Christians still kept it. So for a week, the people of Israel would pitch tents in their streets, they would live in those tents for the entire week. They would have worship services. They would feast together. And it was to remind them that God took care of them as they were wandering around the desert for 40 years. And so this is, a, this is a busy month. There's not a whole lot of work that gets done. Because on top of these feast days and festivals, you also had to keep the Sabbath, right? And so there was at least four or five um, Saturdays within that month. And so the people of God were busy worshiping God. And here we see in, in verse 1 of chapter 2 that God gives Haggai a word. We have to remind ourselves that when Haggai speaks here, this is not him speaking. These are God's words through human speech. 
And we also see, if you remember from last week, all throughout the book of Haggai, Haggai is called Haggai the prophet, and then he becomes Haggai the messenger. And we talked about how this was an important message from Haggai, just like the rest of them. But this underscored the idea that just like the people of Israel would not question an angel or they would not question an ambassador with a signet ring, they were not to question Haggai. But here we return to the word prophet to remind us that Haggai is a spokesman on behalf of God. He is to be respected and heard and obeyed because this is God's command. So in verse 2 of chapter 2, we're told this. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say. So verse 2, just to catch us back up to where we were, um, Zerubbabel means seed of Babylon. He's a descendant of David. He is a forefather of Jesus. He is the governor of Judah, of the people that have returned. Joshua means Yahweh saves. He is the high priest. He is the one during all of these festivals that was leading them religiously. He was the one on the Day of Atonement that went into the holiest of holies to present the sacrifice on behalf of Israel to God. And Haggai wants these two men along with the people to hear this message. In verse 3, God says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes. Friends, Solomon's temple was destroyed 66 years before Haggai preaches this sermon. So that means that only the folks in their 70s and 80s, if they're even there, right? Remember, they have been taken into Babylon, then they've moved to Persia, and now they've returned. So even if they're there, those are the only folks who would remember the old temple. And it is not as glorious as it used to be. The glory of the temple is gone. The splendor of, of the stones and the majesty of, of, of King Solomon and, and, and the high priest and, and his, his, his dress and, and the people gathering together to worship and sacrifice the Lord, they are not seeing this. And on top of this, The present never matches up to our memory. The older I get, the more I realize this, right? This is a reminder that we are good old days people trusting in a future glory God. We are good old days people trusting a future glory God. Our hearts go back to what it used to be, what it was and God wants us to look forward to what he has prepared for us. As many of you know, my, my mom was in this week uh, to help me with the two littles as Meg took the kids to camp. Mom and I were talking. She was telling me that she took um, her two sisters, my, my aunts, um, to go see some of the, the old home places. And they went to this, this town, this former coal camp where my grandmother grew up called Stone, Kentucky. And my mom hasn't been there since she was a little girl. I mean, it's, it's been over 50 years. And she said as soon as she pulled in, um, you know, the, 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 um, my great-grandparents' home, it had been torn down. It wasn't there anymore. But she noticed that the, the foreman of the coal company, his house, which is, is as soon as you cross the railroad tracks and enter the town, it's right there on your right. She said when she was a little girl, she thought it was a mansion. 
It looked like the biggest house she had ever seen. And then she, as she returned as an adult, she realized that it was actually smaller than the house that I grew up in, right? Um, and, and this reminds us that, that our hearts tend to look at the old days and make them better than they were. And what was happening here with Haggai and Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people is that they were looking back to what Judah was like before the Babylonians came, and they were saying, this doesn't measure up. And of course it doesn't measure up. The wall has just been rebuilt. They're working on the temple now. They're working on the homes that they have. It doesn't look like what it used to be, but God is going to tell them, worry about the future. Draw faith from the past. See my hand at work in your life and in your parents' life and in your grandparents' life. Remember that I'm the one that kept you as a people even as you went into captivity, even as I was disciplining you and you moved to Babylon and then you moved to Persia. My hand was on you. Friends, we have to remind ourselves as Jesus followers that it was, was Jesus' future glory that kept him on the cross. It was his love for his people. And as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that knowledge that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, that's what drove him to the cross. That's what made him humble to do what he needed to do. And that's what kept him there. For those of you in here who would not classify yourselves as a believer. I don't know if you consider yourself a conservative who wants to go back 50 years or a progressive who thinks we haven't gone far enough. But here's the reality. God's future glory rests on the salvation of his people and his just wrath on his enemies. So whether you think we need to go back into the past or head into the future, you need to realize that God is bending and working through history into the future to save his people and to bring his wrath upon his enemies. So the call for you, friend, is stop running from him. Stop, stop being his enemy. See his love for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and respond with repentance and faith. Christian, we need to remember that we are called to proclaim God's word with the future in mind. We are not making disciples for tomorrow or next week or even 10 years from now. Now, we are, right? We want disciples to grow in their faith and find their joy in Christ. But our ultimate goal is the new Jerusalem when Jesus returns. And so we want to create people not who obey discipleship programs, not people um, who will say the right things and, 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 and follow the right protocol. We want people who will worship Jesus for eternity. Those are the people we're seeking to build here. And so we share the gospel trusting that God is sovereign and is, is preparing his people for his future glory. Church, we need to rejoice in God's faithfulness in the past, in the present, and even rejoice in his faithfulness in the future. The things that we cannot see, the things that we do not know are coming. And when we think about the public square, we need to work for the future good of the Hatch Valley. 
Right? We want to make disciples of the people here so that they are with us in the New Jerusalem. But at the same time, we want the future of Hatch to be bright. Right? We want children educated. We want safe homes and safe streets. These are good things that will give us a fertile ground for the gospel. So we go to verse 4. Haggai continues, you, or I'm sorry, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. So it's funny that these, this one command comes three times to three separate people. Zerubbabel, the, the governor of the land, be strong. Joshua, the high priest, be strong. People of the land, be strong. He calls them the people of the land because he wants to nod to the truth that he is a promise keeper. He is the one who has been with them and kept every promise he made to them. And he wants them to be strong, like a fortified wall, like the wall they just built around Jerusalem. He wants them to be strong, like a rebuilt temple, like the effort they just put to building the wood frames back and putting the stones back in place. He wants them to find their strength in him. But before he gets to that, he tells them, I want you to work. Do what I have asked you to do. Obey my commands. Fulfill your calling. Because I am with you. He says, I am with you, declares who? The Lord of hosts. We've talked about the Lord of hosts. You may be tired of hearing it, but Haggai keeps bringing it up. This is Yahweh, the undefeated champion of the universe. The one who is surrounded by angel armies. The one who has saved them and defeated Empire after empire and the gods of those empires from Egypt to Babylon to soon to be Persia. And then, of course, Haggai doesn't see this, but we've seen it. Greece, Rome, all of your European powers, no government, no king, no queen, no one has stood the test of time like God has. It is a faulty idea to place your hope in the kings and their chariots and their armies. Your hope should be in the God who has been, is, and always will be in control. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God wants them to remember that he is a covenant-keeping God and they are a covenant-making people. He has not forgotten his covenants. In fact, when he talks about the covenant that he made when they came out of Egypt, this would bring their minds to the Feast of Tabernacles that they just celebrated. Right? Their hearts were, were focused in on God's faithfulness during the Exodus while they had the Feast of Tabernacles. And now God is saying, remember who I was then because I am still him. He is present among his people. 
And then at the end of this verse, he uses the term fear not. And this is, uh, sorry guys, my mic is going crazy. Um, so not to, get, um, not to get grammar nerd on you, but I think this is important. Uh, verbs have moods, all right? And, and the mood implies how the verb is supposed to be used. So the best example for this is, you know, when I yell at my kids, don't run out into the street, uh, that's an imperative mood, right? So you'd normally put an exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. Well, the mood of this verb is, it's an uncommon mood, and it's not in a lot of languages. In fact, I like to say it's in the angry-sounding languages. It's in Russian, it's in German, it's in Hebrew, it's in Arabic, right? All of those Languages that are kind of ugh, like like those languages, right? And so the justive language, which is or the justive mood, which is what this verb is in, is it's only from a commander to his troops. This is in the line of fire, making a command that has to be followed. And the command is what? Fear not. Do not be afraid. The kingdoms are around you. They look like they're, they're about to fall on you once again. But fear not, for I am with you. Trust and obey, because when I'm with you, all is well. This is a reminder that some of us hide in worry. Some of us hide in work. Yet God is calling all of us to live in his strength. Some of us hide in worry. Some of us hide in work. Yet God is calling all of us to live in his strength. I think the best way to describe this is it's like a bicycle with training wheels, right? You're called to do the pedaling. You're called to do the work, but you're not holding yourself up. The training wheels are what, what are keeping you up. And so we work on behalf of the Lord, but it is in his strength and his might that we see his plan come about. This reminds us of of the strength of Jesus when he was teaching and healing and confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When he died on the cross and when he came back to life, all of it was from the power and strength of his Father. Friends, this reminds us that worry and work will only lead us deeper into sin. I'm not saying that work, what I mean by work is, is trying to do things on your own and on your own strength. If you are caught in a perpetual cycle of worrying about the future and not knowing what's going to happen or trying to work your way into some sort of good standing financially or spiritually, I want to call you to repent of that and rest in the goodness of God. Rest in the gospel. Rest in his promises. And know that the work that God calls you to do, he is the one who gives the strength for that. Christians, living in that strength requires you to pray. You cannot find this strength just by summoning it up. You need to be connecting with the Lord in prayer and finding your strength from there. As the church, we need to be praying for his power to be on display in all that we do. From our worship to our discipleship to our evangelism, everything that we seek to do to build up believers and reach unbelievers needs to be done from his strength. And friends, when you are at your job and in your neighborhood, uh, 
Know that God's strength is enough for whatever you're facing. Whether you're being tempted by sin, you're being, you're being persecuted because of, of who you are and what you believe, in your, or in your attempts to, to tell people about Jesus, and even in your discontent, God's strength is enough. We go to verse 6. Haggai says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Again, Lord of hosts, God of angel armies. He says, In a little while, he's going to shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land. We're going to see in a second that he's talking about well into the future. All right? But this is to remind us where he says in a little while of what Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that, that to the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Okay? Do not be discouraged when the Bible says soon or in a little while, and these are things that we're still waiting on. The Lord is working in his wisdom for his glory in his plan, and we're called to trust him and wait. So this, this idea of shaking the, the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, it has with it the idea of a violent upheaval. When the prophets move into this language, this is to point us to the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus returns. This is to give us a longing for the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is promised in Revelation 21-22. And it's funny that he is talking about this because... In Revelation 21, 22, John tells us what? That there is no temple, right? They've worked so hard in building this temple. And we're told there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. You know why? Because God is there. Jesus is there. There's no brokenness because of sin. There's no disconnect because of our guilt before God. We have intimate fellowship with him, with nothing standing in between us. In verse 7, he says, And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So this shaking of nations and treasures, I would argue this has already begun. With Jesus coming and the church gathering, we are seeing God bring from every nation treasure. And I don't think the treasure is just limited to money. I believe this treasure is you, Gentile. You who comes from a people who did not belong to God, but now belongs to God because of Jesus. Remember what Jesus tells us in John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you will destroy this temple, and in three days it will be built back. He was not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about himself. Jesus is the temple that we go to for worship. Jesus is the temple that we meet in as the church because we are the body of Christ. And this treasure is us and the things that God has blessed us with as we give up ourselves and our livelihoods for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Friends, I would argue that this glory that is about to come is already being glimpsed here and now in his church. Because the church gives us little glimpses of what's to come. When people from 
different socioeconomic situations, when people from different races gather together to sing the praises of God, this is a foretaste of what the new Jerusalem will be like. As we long for all nations, tongues, and tribes to celebrate the death of sin and the death of, of, of hell through the, our crucified and risen King, we see that when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Verses 8 and 9. Haggai finishes with this. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Everything belongs to God. All silver and all gold is his. In this latter glory, this future glory, it's better than what they were experiencing then and what we are experiencing now for a couple of reasons. One, in the latter glory, in the return of Christ, in the new Jerusalem, we will see Jesus in all of his glory. We will see him as the prophet and the priest and the king that Israel was longing for and that our hearts long for. Two, all nations, tribes, and tongues will be there. We will get to experience Worship like we've never seen it before. And God's glory will be on full display because his final plan will be seen and known. There's, no more, there's nothing clouded in mystery anymore. We will be able to look over the entirety of history and see the goodness and faithfulness of God to his people. And finally, we will get to sing with Zerubbabel and with Joshua, and with Haggai, and with all of these returned exiles as we gather around the risen Lamb and rejoice in His work for sinners like you and me. Haggai finishes this sermon by saying, And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is the shalom, the rest, that, that the people of God have always longed for, where there is no more competition between each other. There's no more fighting with God. There's no more fighting with ourselves. And there's no more fighting on the inside as we seek to, to defeat sin and follow Jesus. Friends, these verses here remind us that this earth is beautiful, but it is broken. And as we know the truth that, that absent from this body is present with the Lord, that there is a greatness of heaven, right? You think of, of Revelation chapter 4 and that, that worship scene is beautiful and amazing, but none of it, this life here or our momentary time in heaven compares to the new Jerusalem that awaits us. The new Jerusalem will be the greatest You know that song by Waylon Jennings? I bet you were waiting for that, that poet to show up in the sermon, right? But uh, there's a song where, where Waylon's having some, some issues in his, in his marriage, and he's been caught up in the rat race, right? And he tells, he tells his wife, let's just go to Lukenbach, Texas with Waylon and Willie and the boys, right? And, and in that song, he keeps coming back to this idea that there's, if we go back to Lukenbach, there will be no pain there. 
And when we hear about the new Jerusalem, one of the, one of the things that our hearts long for is that there is no pain in that place. Right? Every, every tear is dried and all pain is gone. But friends, I would argue that is not the greatest thing about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I would say it's not just the absence of pain that makes it great, but the presence of joy of being in the presence of our Savior, of getting to see Jesus, of getting to do what Thomas got to do in that upper room, of feeling his scars, of seeing his face finally, of knowing more of God than just what's on the page. We get those glimpses sometimes in Bible study, sometimes in prayer, and sometimes in worship. But what you are longing for and wanting, it is there. And the call on us is to persevere. Just like Jesus took up the cross for an eternity of worship and glory from us, we pick up our crosses and follow him, knowing that at the right hand of the Father are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters in Christ, persevere. Church, let us persevere together. Let us walk the walk together. Let us mature in Christ together. Do not do this as a lone ranger. There is nowhere in the New Testament where it says, be a Christian alone. You were created for community. And friends in the public square, let us be quick to take up temporal pain and loss for eternal joy in Jesus. He is worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time to spend in your word. And Father, I pray that you would, you would open our hearts and, and our lives to the truth of this message. God, let us rest in the work that you've done. Let us work out of the strength that you give. And help us to persevere, to see with joy the day that Haggai promises. Father, we love you. And, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.